This is The Guardian. I'm Jane Lee, and this is The Full Story. If you're like me, you probably don't think a whole lot about your super. It's just something that comes out of your pay every fortnight, and it'll be there for you when you retire, many years down the road. But 30 years since superannuation became compulsory in Australia, women in their early 60s have, on average, significantly less retirement savings than men of the same age. And when you have no one else to rely on for financial support, this matters a lot more than you might think. Today, why super is failing women. It's Tuesday, the 23rd of August. Wait, I can stack a box. So hi, is that Jane? Hi, yeah, hi. nice to meet you. You too. Let's go. So uh, Stephanie, do you want to just say your name and your title just for the tape to kick us off? I'm Stephanie Wood and I'm a freelance Sydney-based writer. So Stephanie, you've been speaking to women from all different ages and backgrounds for The Guardian about superannuation. So how important is super for women? I don't even know where to begin when when we talk about the importance of it to women because it's the very definition of independence. If a woman doesn't have strong superannuation for her retirement, she's going to live a very much more perilous life. And as I started to look into it, it became really apparent to me why single women over 55 Um, particularly those who are single or widowed or divorced, are the fastest growing group of of people in Australia at risk of homelessness. It really is important for for a woman's independence and and just life sustainability to have a good superannuation balance when they retire. And I don't think I really had given it as much thought as I should have done Mm. because the more research I did, the more I realised that unlike men, Women's superannuation, the the actual amount of a woman's superannuation tells so much about her life. Those numbers tell stories about the curveballs, the challenges and the catastrophes. What do you mean by that? How do setbacks in life affect women's super differently to men? There's just such a disproportionate disadvantage women face in superannuation. Um, On average, women between 60 and 64 have about a quarter less in their superannuation than men of the same age. I also learned through my research that a large number of women, particularly older women, also say that they have no superannuation at all. It's just a a glaring inequity between men and women for multiple reasons. And so what does it look like when you don't have any super at the end of your working life? Unless you've got funds elsewhere, which if you don't have super, you're unlikely to have funds elsewhere, you're likely to be relying on the age pension, which is universally considered to be inadequate. Mm. And so why is this happening? You mentioned that there are many reasons, but why in general do you think women are falling behind men when it comes to super? It's it's a multi-layered problem. The original superannuation scheme, as and still does, relies on the idea that people will work consistently for their entire lives, which, of course, as we know, for most women, particularly those who have um, children, and are out of the workforce for periods of time having children just isn't the case. The other thing is that women are disproportionately in lower paid jobs, feminised industries such as nursing or childcare or aged care and get paid less. And even in white collar professions, there's the gender pay gap and women who are doing the same role as a bloke 
get paid way less. I think the, the gap between the average weekly ordinary time earnings of women compared to men is about 14%. And superannuation is is obviously a, a proportion of your pay, and if you are paid less, the percentage is going to be you're going to have a lower amount of superannuation. And I suppose thirty years ago, when compulsory super began, women were probably more likely to stay at home. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. There are a few factors that are interesting in there. There's the, there's the fact that a lot of women back then were staying at home and so not working and so not not getting any percentage on anything, percentage of zero. So there are a lot of factors that are coming into, feeding into the the fact that older women particularly are at such a disadvantage. I mean, I think younger women are catching up a little bit, but there are a lot of older women that just have nothing, nothing to, re- to rely on, nothing to fall back on. And one researcher I spoke to is looking at the power imbalance in households where the women never worked or worked very little. And in some of these couples that are still together, which for the most part are heterosexual couples, these women are just completely dependent on their husband's superannuation. So that just creates enormous power imbalances. And I want to get into some of those power dynamics in relationships and how they play out. But um, before we get to that, you know, what rights do these women have to access information about their partner's super if they're so dependent on them for this? There's a real strange contradiction here because if you end up separating from your partner, you've now got some rights to request information about your former partner's super thanks to some, some legal changes recently. But for that elderly or older woman who's in a in a relationship with a potentially controlling partner and who's dependent on his superannuation for her retirement income, that woman doesn't have any rights to any information about his superannuation situation. Even they could have been married for 50, 60 years. And she can't find out what what he has in his superannuation, which just is extraordinary. I mean, it sounds like women are at a real disadvantage from the outset if they don't work. But what kinds of disadvantages do women face in relation to their super if they do work? Well, if they do work, they're disadvantaged because probably they're getting less than the man that's doing similar work. Then when they leave the workforce to to have a child, if and when they return to the workforce, they're not going to go back in generally at the same level. And so that's a disadvantage that's been widely referred to as the motherhood tax. And, you know, the women fall behind in their career progression. They suffer all sorts of biases, which means they're less likely to be promoted. Often in, in such, they're considered to be unreliable or the perception is that they're always running off to, to pick up children or deal with children's ill health. Um, and those biases of perception mean that they're less likely to get a promotion or to be favoured for a job that might be going. So it's sort of there's just these systemic injustices and biases all the way through the system. Did you speak to any women who had this experience with, you know, the so-called motherhood tax? I spoke to one woman who'd been in and out of the workforce as she had children and each time she went back into the workforce, her career did not progress. And even now, um, after a divorce, she's still in a job that is far less than she would have been at otherwise had she not had to leave the workforce. But at the other end of the scale is also the women who haven't had children, which for many um, is a real sadness. 
And conversely, they have often very high super balances, as in one woman I spoke to who's been in the public service and benefited from very generous public service superannuation. She's not left the workforce once in her adult life. She's been a very frugal, careful saver and also invested way beyond the compulsory super. She's added as much as she possibly could and now has the superannuation balance in excess of $1.5 million. But it's not just new mums who take on the bulk of the caring, right? I mean, women are statistically more likely to be carers throughout their lives. So what happens to women who are carers later in life? What happens to their super then? Figures show that more than 70% of carers are women, which I guess shouldn't come as any surprise to the the army of women out there who are caring for, for disabled kids or elderly parents or, or other relatives. What happens to them? A report by Carers Australia this year, earlier this year, says that the superannuation balance at the age of 67 of a primary carer is reduced by about $17,000, $17,700 for every year they're in that caring role. Wow. So women take up the bulk of caring in general, and that can mean that their super takes a hit, possibly both earlier and later in their adult lives. And with all these disadvantages in mind, both if you work and if you choose not to work, if you're relying on your partner for super, I imagine it must get pretty complicated if you end up breaking up. Absolutely. Uh, I spoke to a number of women whose superannuation took a hit when they split from their partners. And uh, in fact, there's a 2018 Monash University report that was commissioned by Australian Super, which found that divorce was terribly harmful to the retirement savings of women. And they frequently made the, as we've discussed, the, the, the career sacrifices during their marriage on the presumption that they'd have this pooled retirement income when they were older. And of course, the broken relationship um, changes everything. Many women don't even know that they're legally entitled to half of their partner's Super when they split. And that can lead many women not to push for this when they separate. Yeah, I guess it makes it even more complicated if the relationship that's breaking up is an abusive one. Absolutely. There was one woman I spoke to in Western Australia who had an emotionally abusive husband. She thinks she was possibly suffering from postnatal depression when he persuaded her to set up life insurance, which I think was a very ill-advised thing for him to suggest. She paid all of this money, tens of thousands of dollars into this policy, and it was eventually cancelled anyhow for strange bureaucratic reasons. And she hadn't put any money into super, and so she had nothing, nothing towards her retirement income. And And she didn't want to pursue her husband for anything when the relationship ended. She just wanted to walk away from it as fast as she possibly could. This relationship had elements of what's known as coercive control. That's a pattern of domestic abuse that often involves intimidation, which is used to control a partner. When it comes to coercive control, the abuse can be physical, emotional, mental and financial. It just can be so disruptive to that nice, clean stream of income that superannuation really needs. I grew up in a household where being controlled was perfectly normal. So when I got into a a relationship with a man who didn't hit me, Um, I didn't realise that there were other ways to uh, be abused. Financial control was a big part of that. Yeah, I mean, that really played out in the case of one woman named Angie who you put me in touch with. 
Yes, Angie was in an abusive relationship. She was a stay-at-home mum taking care of a child who was very unwell and her partner controlled all the finances in the household to the point where she was afraid to even ask questions about money. Losing sort of any choice or any decision I could make myself was taken out of my hands. Angie says one of the ways her partner would control her was to control her spending. So he would do things like give her money to spend on groceries and if he thought she'd spent too much one week, he'd give her less the next week. If you don't align yourself with their idea of a perfect, you know, little housewife that just does as they're told, here's the money for the bills, you you spent too much on groceries, well, next week you get less. I felt like I had no control. I had no real thought about it because I didn't understand. I didn't know. Um, But I know that uh, being a a very broken woman, um, the last thing on my mind was my retirement. She told me that she lost years of income and, you know, potential super during this relationship. And when she was finally able to leave her partner, he was facing criminal charges. And so she was left worse off in the end because she didn't feel she could pursue him for her rightful share of his super. When I first moved out, I'd already given him access to half of everything. So he already had everything. And I explained to the lawyer, this is all I have. And she said that, you know, you can go after his super. But she also said to me, be warned, it will make things harder, it will make it more aggressive. So, yeah, I had to um, make the decision, is it worth it? And, I mean, I I didn't even know how much he had. (laughs) So um, I was really in the dark. All I wanted was to get away, just I wanted nothing to do with him. And leaving this man was a wake-up call for Angie. She told me that she realised how little she had to survive on by herself and she just had to start all over again. I had no furniture, I had nothing. Uh, Suddenly found myself living, living, um, you know, with what money I had left, what money I managed to, and I didn't have very much savings. And here I am trying to build myself a life again for myself and my two children. But one thing it did teach me is to be very resourceful and learned very, very quickly that the only person I could really truly rely on if I, it would be myself. Angie's now in her mid-40s and she told me she now has just $47,000 in super as a result of all these setbacks in her life. She's now back in the workforce and like many single mums, working really hard to build that back up, but, it, but it's not easy. And it's definitely not easy for a woman to leave an abusive relationship in the first place. So what about those women who find themselves unable to do this? What could happen to their super while they remain in that abusive relationship? One of the really interesting things that emerged during the pandemic when the government, the federal government, allowed people early access to their superannuation to to help them through tough times. The Australian Institute of Superannuation Trustees did a survey and that body estimates that more than 70,000 women who withdrew superannuation during that scheme, during that sort of 2020 period, were coerced into doing so, which just strikes me as just like an outrageous number because you don't then know what the money's been spent on. You don't know whether the women, if they've been coerced to take it out, 70,000 women coerced to empty their super, perhaps that money has not even been spent on household expenses or kids or or food. Perhaps it's been used in other ways to benefit a partner that is behaving badly. 
in recent years, we've learned that coercive control is one of the patterns of behaviour in, in relationships with domestic violence. So beyond financial damage that these women are, are, are suffering, many of them are possibly also being physically abused. So the, the abuse is physical and financial. Mm. Well, could separation ever be beneficial for a woman's super? Yeah, if, if a woman's comfortable in those negotiations, um, yes, it could be. One woman I spoke to didn't want to go to the family court. She and her husband were very concerned that that, that wasn't what they wanted to do. And while the marriage hadn't been great, they were able to, with the help of a mediator, reach a good settlement and she walked away with what she deserved and is doing okay now. Next, what are some of the things that could fix the inequalities in super? Stephanie, given these serious implications on women's financial freedom, why do you think policies around super haven't improved? over the last 30 years? Because it's such a tremendously complex issue. Um, It requires government money to fix it. There's not one simple solution. And a lot of people have very different views on the best way to fix it. Mm. Well, what are some of the ways governments have recently tried to address these systemic inequalities in super that we've discussed? One of Labor's signature election policies before the federal election was to extend childcare subsidies. There are a lot of advocates who say that free childcare, easily accessible childcare and highly professional childcare will really help more women stay in the workforce for longer and make a dent in the gender pay gap and, as a result, superannuation. Another thing Labor planned to do before the election was to pay superannuation on paid parental leave, yet again to make further inroads into the pay gap, but it's shelved um, this until further notice. The budget just couldn't wear it. When I interviewed Stephen Jones, the Federal Minister for Financial Services, one of the first things he said that the government was prioritising as a way of addressing this superannuation inequity was to ensure the passage of the superannuation guarantee levy the increase from 10% to 10.5% in July. <laughs> That's fine and great, but if you're not working, if you're a woman suffering any of the, the number of things that we've talked about from domestic abuse to just being out of the workforce caring for kids, that's not going to help you in any way. Mm. Stephen Jones told me that um, the government definitely at, at some point when there is what he describes as headroom in the budget uh, wants to implement paid parental leave. But who knows when there's going to be headroom in the budget, given everything that's happening. But as many of the experts I spoke to said, paid parental leave isn't forever. It doesn't go for the duration of a woman's time out of the workforce. So it's only going to be a small, make a small difference. What about the previous Morrison government? Were there any notable reforms that were made to super under the previous government? There were a couple of interesting initiatives that I think will make a difference, one of which is the access where there's a difficult family law court proceeding. There was a change that now allows women to request up-to-date information about their former partner's superannuation from the Australian Tax Office. And And I think that's hugely important because that will allow women 
access to the information they need about what they're entitled to and so give them more power to fight for their share of their partner's super during what's likely to be an already complicated separation. And also, and this will affect all sorts of people, like, including freelancers like me, um, who might get small amounts of, of money from a number of different employers. Since the beginning of this financial year, employers have been required to pay super to workers who earn less than $450 a month from one employer. And a lot more women than men work in casual jobs and have part-time hours um, and, and, and might have a number of different small amounts of money going in and now they will be able to earn super on those small amounts. And that will affect me as a freelancer. I'm quite happy about that. So what do you think needs to change to improve women's super? I really think it has to be such a systematic approach to address this issue from multiple fronts. Um, And it's just so important for the dignity and the safety of women um, as they age. One of the, the people I spoke to from the Grattan Institute believes that the pension is more important than superannuation, that if the pension is a really livable, decent wage for people, the superannuation becomes far less important. Mm. This expert at the Grattan Institute also said that they really think that rental assistance is important because if you don't own a home yeah. when you are retiring and you have no superannuation, that is a real red flag, you're going to have some problems. It almost seems like women are penalised if they are with an abusive partner or if they just separate from a partner, abusive or not, if they care for their children more than their partners at an early age and if they care for their loved ones later in life. All of these situations seem to end up in a situation where women have less super than men. Mm. The only way you're not penalised is if you actually are like a man and work your whole life, don't care for anyone, don't have kids, and then, you know, you might have equity. It, it, it just seems so unfair on so many levels. We've talked a lot about these systemic inequalities in super, but do you think we have a broader cultural problem here in the way we as women talk about superannuation and also our right to superannuation over our lifetime. I think it's even broader than that. I think it's also about we how we as women talk about our futures from a very young age that our future is in, inextricably tied to someone else, a, a partner that is going to provide for us financially. And the culture is is telling women, young women that their life's not complete without a man. Whereas the message should be very different. It should be Yes, that's that's one aspect of life, but you need to provide for yourself and be prepared to provide for yourself because nothing else is guaranteed. Mm. What would you tell young women today about um, the importance of their financial futures and, and saving in their super? I think I'd say to a young woman that it's almost, it, it, that it's as important, if not more so, than your dating life. Looking after your money, being independent, planning to be independent should come first before you start to think about a relationship. When you do enter a relationship, you are an equal financial partner in that relationship as much as you possibly can be. Yeah. When I spoke to Angie, 
she seemed to have come a long way from being what was essentially an unequal financial partner in an abusive relationship. Uh, She used to feel like she had no right to even ask about her own finances. And now today she's a single mum and she regularly monitors her super and she makes her own financial decisions completely independently. I asked her what it meant to her that she's able to do that now. It feels like you've got a bit of control back. Um, I say I say a bit because, let's be honest, um, I'm only part-time and I'm not earning as much as I'd like, but there is something in it where you sit there and go, like, I'm in control of my future now, that I'm making the decision that's going to benefit me later on. Um, look, if I pass away, I know that I've got a, um, a fund in there that there's a life insurance policy to help my children. So I have that... Uh, I wouldn't say power, but I just, I feel like I got a little bit of my power back. And what advice would you have for another woman who's not quite where you're at now? Like, what advice would you give them? I would definitely say, um, look, there's nothing wrong with Googling. The only advice I'd ever give to anyone that was was starting out or any, any woman is... It's great to be in a relationship with somebody, but if that relationship goes, that money you have is all you have. And that is what keeps you from being homeless, living in your car. The decisions you make now will affect your future. This is your nest egg. Thanks to freelance writer Stephanie Wood and to Angie for their time. If this episode's raised any issues for you, you can call the National Domestic Family and Sexual Violence Counselling Service on 1800 737 732, 24 hours a day. That includes help for everyone, including those who don't speak English, who find it easier to speak through an interpreter, and those who have speech difficulties. You can read Stephanie's feature article on superannuation at theguardian.com. It includes many stories about women from all ages, one who was left homeless, another who saved more than a million dollars in super over the course of her career. It's called I Don't Mind Camping But I Won't Sleep in the Car, What Happens When Superannuation Keeps Failing Women. We'll post a link to the article on the Full Story website. This episode was produced by Karishma Luthria, Alison Chan and myself. Sound design and mixing by Joe Koning. The executive producers of Full Story are Gabrielle Jackson, Miles Martignoni, Molly Glassy, and Laura Murphy-Oates. I'm Jane Lee. Catch you next time.